Hey everybody, I'm Alec and this is Scandal 101. Hello, how are you doing? I hope you are doing well. Is your day going well? Is your night going well? Your morning? Whatever you're listening, I hope it's going well. I am super excited for the second part of the British Museum and Stolen Artifacts episode. I really don't have a lot to say. Uh, I'm going to start off with a review of part one that is by no means... Um, an excuse to not listen to part one because there is a lot of important information that I am going to briefly review with you, but you really need to listen to part one to have a background understanding of why it is so hard and so, I guess, frustrating to get items out of the museum. You really need to understand that, but As a review of part one, we looked at a brief history of the British Museum, how it started in 1759 because of an act by Parliament. There was this guy named Hans Sloan who had 80,000 or more than 80,000 items, and we were like, hey homie, where'd you get all those items? We don't know, but he had them and they were donated to the museum, which helped start its collection and now the museum sees more than six million visitors per year and it has over eight million artifacts that covers more than two million years of human history we briefly talked about british colonialism we basically just went through a timeline that led up to late 1800s early 1900s that was when the british empire was known as the empire on which the sun never sets because their reach was all over the globe and the reason we talked about that was so you could have a better understanding of how it's possible that all of these artifacts ended up in the museum And then we talked about some British laws that are pretty frustrating, such as the 1963 law, which makes it really difficult for items to come out of the museum. There was the case, uh, the 2005 court case, that had to deal with the four paintings that were looted by Nazis. And then shortly after World War II ended up in the British Museum, we talked about how legally the trustees of the museum were not allowed to give the paintings back, but they instead rather gave payments to the families and relatives and now that there is a holocaust act of 2009 that says that objects that were looted by nazis can be returned which is great it kind of circumvents that 1963 law and really the last major thing we talked about was a legal term which i am not going to try to pronounce again you can listen to part one for me to probably butcher that, but it says essentially that no one gives what they do not have, and we talked about how if the British Museum acquired these items through looting or stealing during their colonial times, should they give them back? Did they ever really own them if they were stolen? And that's kind of where we left off. Um, We left off with a quote from someone who resigned from the board of trustees from the British Museum that basically said, I'm just going to read the back half of the quote because it was really good. The British Museum, born and bred in the empire and colonial practice, is coming under scrutiny, and yet it hardly speaks. 
So that is where we left off on part one. And like I said last time, this part is going to cover different artifacts that are highly contested in terms of their ownership or where they should be that are in the British Museum. And we are going to look at three different artifacts. We are going to look at the Rosetta Stone. We're going to look at the African tablets, otherwise known as the Benin bronzes, and we are also going to look at the Parthenon sculptures. And basically what I'm going to do for each artifact is I'm going to talk about the significance and a little bit of history about the artifact, history of how it got into the museum, attempts that have been made to get it back from the owners or the country of which it came from, and kind of what all that has ended up with for each artifact. So the first artifact, like I said, we're going to talk about is the Rosetta Stone. And no, it is not the language translation website. Um, it is an actual stone, which I'm assuming inspired the Rosetta Stone website name because the Rosetta Stone is a broken piece of a larger slab and on the Rosetta Stone, there are three written languages, hieroglyphs, Demotic, which is the cursive Egyptian script used for daily purposes, and ancient Greek. And my sources for this first part of the episode comes from the British Museum's website talking about the history of the Rosetta Stone and an independent article written by Milmo in 2011. Uh, it was a really good article, and I'll put where you can find the show notes at the end of the episode. But the Rosetta Stone, like I said, has three different languages on it. And the reason why it's so important was because at the time of its discovery, no one knew how to read ancient hieroglyphs. They knew that it was a the language of ancient Egypt, but no one knew how to read it. But at the time, people did know how to read ancient Greek, and... The message on the Rosetta Stone was the same message written in three languages. So the same message was written in hieroglyphs, Demotic, and Ancient Greek. Since people knew how to read Ancient Greek, they could translate it and decipher essentially what the hieroglyphs meant. And it was a huge factor in learning how to decipher the hieroglyphs. So that's a little bit of why it's so significant, because it really was the key that unlocked the ancient language of hieroglyphs, and how it came into the museum is also an important story. There are a couple of, I guess it's a little debated on how it got exactly into the museum, but the most widely accepted story is that it was accidentally found by soldiers in Napoleon Barnuo. Napoleon Bonaparte's army on July 15th, 1799, the soldiers in the army were digging a foundation to make an additional fort in the town of, I believe it's pronounced Rashid, which translates to Rosetta, and this was in the Nile Delta. Napoleon was in Egypt uh, with the intention of dominating the East Mediterranean, and he was wanting to remove British control of India. Napoleon eventually was defeated by the British, and the Rosetta Stone and other antiques that the French had found uh, became British property after the French were defeated. Now, like I said, while there are conflicting stories of the transition from French to British ownership, the one I said is the most widely accepted. There are some other ones that you can find online, but I found the one that I said in multiple sources, and it is the most widely accepted. So while there are those conflicting stories, one detail does remain pretty consistent, 
And it's the fact that there is little or no record of talking to Egyptians about taking the stone from the country or from the area. So basically the timeline of what happened is the French conquered Egypt and the stone was French property. And then when Britain defeated the French, the stone was brought into British quote-unquote ownership, shall we say. According to an independent article, the one that I mentioned earlier by Milmo, quote, when the stone eventually arrived back in Britain, it bore an inscription painted in white, and the inscription said, captured in Egypt by the British army in 1801, end quote. So the British army is admitting that they captured this stone, and in my mind, the word captured means taken without permission, not, hey, we found this stone, and we talked to Egypt, and they were really cool with us taking it back from where it was found and it's probably significant but like they're cool with it it's all cool like no i don't really think that's what that's saying it says captured in egypt since arriving in british custody quote unquote it has been displayed in the british museum since 1802 minus one small break uh, in 1917 during world war one when the museum was concerned about heavy bombing in london so it spent two years 50 feet underground to protect it but other than those two years it has been on display at the british museum and from everything i read it is the most visited artifact in the museum which makes sense with how significant it is and it's also a huge stone tablet with a bunch of writing on it from a long time ago like I would want to see that and I promise that's not sarcasm like that actually sounds pretty interesting to me so what attempts have there been to get it back because like I said it was captured from Egypt so you would think that Egypt is going to want it back and yes you would be right there are attempts to have the Rosetta Stone back in Egypt some of these efforts have been at the hands of and I'm going to try my best with this name Dr. Zahi Hawass, I believe is how you say it. Um, he is or was, I couldn't find if he still currently is, but the Secretary of Egypt's Supreme Council on Antiques. During his time at the SCA, the Supreme Court, or the Supreme Council of Antiques, he claims to have secured the return, oh, I guess during his time, so I don't think he is there anymore. He claims to have secured the returns of over 5,000 Egyptian artifacts, which is awesome. You're bringing artifacts back to the country. That's great. So kind of going through a timeline of trying to get the Rosetta Stone back, the first request for the Rosetta Stone to be returned was made in 2003 by Dr. Zahi Hawass. He described the stone as, quote, an icon of our Egyptian identity, end quote. And this information for this section is coming from that Milmo article again from The Independent, and then as well as an article from the Egyptian, or the Egypt Independent by Tafik. I believe is how you say it, um, but that's where my sources come from this section. It was, like I said, requested in 2003. Um, it really didn't seem like anything came out of that, and then the request was made again two years later, but it was unsuccessful. Britain's first response was to present Egypt with a replica of the stone, to which Hawass countered with an offer for Britain to loan the stone to Egypt for three months, and Britain refused this offer. 
In 2009, Hawass sent the three-month loan request again, and in 2013, Giza's Grand Egyptian Museum was set to open, and Hawass wanted it there for the grand opening, which makes sense. You're opening a huge museum in Egypt. It would make sense that, you know, besides the pyramids and the Sphinx, arguably the most important artifact to come out of Egypt you would want there. If the loan was granted to Hawass, he said that he would drop all requests to have the stone permanently moved back to Egypt. And to this, Britain refused. I couldn't find a date for this exact statement from a spokesperson from the British Museum, but they said that, quote, we have not received a work a request for the return of the Rosetta Stone from the GEM. And again, the GEM is the Grand Egyptian Museum. And what I thought was interesting about this specific statement from them was that they said they haven't received a request from the Grand Egyptian Museum. Now, again, I can't find a uh, an exact date of when this statement was made, but if the statement was made, let's say in 2012, or maybe even 2013, after the uh, um, the museum was set to open, it it is very careful choice of words that they said they had not received a request from the Grand Egyptian Museum, because of course you haven't, because it wasn't open for the past couple of years. You've received many requests from Hawass, but of course you haven't from the museum, because it's not been open that long, or it's not even open. And from what I could find, this museum is still not open. When you look it up, it says that it's supposed to be opening in late 2021. Um, obviously, it's been pushed back a lot, so I don't know if it's still set to open at that date, but that was the most recent information I could find. It was just, it just seemed to be very careful choice of wording, which kind of sucks because their statement isn't technically wrong, but it's kind of beating around the bush in the fact that people want this artifact back. Last time we also talked about um, the debate over keeping things, and I don't even know if it's really a debate, but keeping things in museums to preserve them is a really good thing. And I don't know a lot about Egyptian museums or museums in Egypt, but if this museum is the only museum in Egypt that would have been able to house the Rosetta Stone, which I doubt. I'm sure there are museums that are pretty great in Egypt right now. I could understand the British Museum's hesitancy to send it, because if they're wanting to preserve it, they don't want to send it somewhere where it could get damaged. But at the same time, if there are other museums in Egypt that can hold it, that is not really a valid excuse for not giving it back. But yeah, so that kind of wraps up the Rosetta Stone. So the next artifact, contested artifact, that I want to talk about is the African tablets or the Benin bronzes. Now these are plates and tablets made out of brass, bronze, ivory, and wood. Um, from the museum's website, quote, a group of sculptures which include elaborately decorated cast plaques, commemorative heads, animal and human figures, items of royal regalia, and personal ornaments, end quote. And many of these plaques were used to decorate the Benin royal palace and provided a historical record for a long period of history for the kingdom of Benin. 
And my sources for this part come from a New York Times article by Marshall in 2020 and then the British Museum's website as well. So how these items got into the museum. A British official had set out to visit the Kingdom of Benin. He and his men did not come back and in return Britain sent out 1,200 soldiers for revenge, and this was in early 1897 that this happened. So on February 18th of 1897, the British army took Benin, Benin City in a raid. They also took the opportunity to loot artifacts from the city. It's interesting because there are a lot of pictures that were taken of this raid, and a lot of, a lot of items that were looted are pictured and those pictures are labeled with the word loot on them. So I'm not really sure how much clearer it can get that these cities were looted because the photos of the items taken at the time literally have the word loot on them. And one British officer wrote in his, in his diary that at least one British soldier was, quote, wandering round with a chisel and hammer, knocking off brass figures and collecting all sorts of rubbish as loot, end quote. So people at the time were even like, yep, we're taking this as loot, so that's not cool, <laughs> to say the least. Within months of this raid and the looting, the artifacts were displayed in museums across Europe and the United States. So it wasn't just the British Museum that displayed these artifacts. The Benin tablets are all over the world and not in Benin, but I'm focusing for this episode obviously on the British Museum. From the British Museum's website, they say that, quote, along with other monuments and palaces, the royal palace was burned and destroyed. Its shrines and associated compounds were looted by British forces, and thousands of objects of ceremonial and ritual value were taken to the UK as official, quote, spoils of war, end quote. And again, that's directly from the museum's website, so they even admit on their website that it was looted. Now, the attempts to get it back. From the British Museum's website, it says the following, quote, While no formal written request has been received for the return of the museum's Benin collection in their entirety, the Benin Royal Court has made various public statements asking for Benin collections to be returned. These requests have been framed within the context of long-standing dialogues with the museum, including during the visit of the director of the British Museum to the Benin Royal Court in August 2018, end quote. So basically, no formal written, written request has been requested, which again, careful choice of words. Um, but Benin City has asked many times to get the artifacts back, as it was said in the British Museum statement, and... From the New York Times article that I mentioned, one artifact that they want back is a 16th century ivory mask of a famous Oba's mother. And an Oba, if you don't know, is a ruler. I didn't know either. Benin City wanted to borrow it, but the British Museum said that it was too fragile to travel. This was back in 1967. However, a Nigerian news media reported that the British government was asking for $3 million worth of insurance to transport it. So clearly it wasn't too much, too fragile to transport it if you were willing to do it for $3 million, but I don't know. We'll just set that to the side, um, but don't because it seems like they want money. <laughs> um, again, these are my opinions. I'm not saying what the British Museum wants, but that's my opinion. However, 
Nigeria has seemingly changed its stance on wanting these artifacts back for a permanent basis. The state governor at a conference at the, Brit at the British Museum said the following, quote, These works are ambassadors. They represent who we are, and we feel we should take advantage of them to create a connection with the world, end quote. Basically, that message was saying that the state governor of Nigeria wants these artifacts on display around the world, not just in Benin City, which is kind of interesting. I mean, I think if, you know, the country is willing to do that, that's awesome. Um, but there is a lot of heat around these objects going back to Benin because there's not a lot of artifacts of this nature actually in Benin. So the people can't appreciate their history at the local level. They have to be able to afford to travel outside of the country and even outside of the continent to go see these artifacts. Like I said, it does seem like, at least from the museum's perspective, they're doing a better job than they are with the Rosetta Stone, uh, in my opinion. There is something called the Benin Dialogue Group, which is, quote, a working group bringing together museum representatives, including the Benin Royal Court, end quote. And then another quote about them from the museum's website, quote, a central objective for the Benin Dialogue Group is to work together to establish a new museum in Benin City to facilitate a new permanent display of Benin works of art including significant collections of works currently in UK and European museums, end quote. So it sounds like there is progress being made to create a museum in Benin City, which is awesome. It would be great if the people there could appreciate at a large level their history. I couldn't find an update as to the progress of these discussions and also what the status of a museum there is looking like, but it is good, I guess, that it is in the talks. And the last item we are going to talk about is the Parthenon sculptures. I knew nothing about these artifacts. I had heard about the first two, but I knew nothing about these, and these ones are just just fascinating to me. These sculptures come from the Temple of Athena, and I was like, what is the Temple of Athena? It is better known as the Parthenon in Athens, Greece, which I was like, oh, the Parthenon. I know what that is. <laughs> and um, a lot of my research for this section comes from an article titled The Parthenon Sculptures from the British Museum's website, from an article um, by Smith in 1999, which was from The Guardian, and then an article from Bruni in 2020, which is from zocalopublicsquare.org. But like I said, they come from the Parthenon, and they are beautiful decorations made between 447 BC and 432 BC. So they are more than 2,000 years old, and they consist of the following. A frieze, and that's F-R-I-E-Z-E, -E, not freeze like frozen cold. A freeze that shows a procession of a Panathenaic procession, or sorry, Panathenaic festival. A series of metopes, which are sculpted relief panels that depict the battle between centaurs and lapiths at the marriage feast of Pierthus, I believe is how you say it. it. They also portray figures and depictions of gods and legendary heroes. So it's significant uh, to the culture of Greece and ancient Greek history. All in all, the British Museum has 15 metopes, 
17 pedimental figures and 247 feet of the original frieze, which 247 feet, that is like a lot. <laughs> I was trying to think of a comparison, but my brain froze. So it's a lot of feet. It's 247 rulers. The Parthenon was a church, a temple, a mosque, and is now an archaeological site. In 1687, the Parthenon was used as an ammunition store, and there was an explosion which unfortunately left it in ruins, and now almost 50% of the original sculpture has been lost over time due to war, just time, erosion, people stealing things, etc. Just, it's been a long time. It's been like 400 years since it was ruins. So you might be wondering, how did a significant amount of pieces from the Parthenon end up in the British Museum? Well, I'll let you know. Lord Elgin was a British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, and the Ottoman Empire had been the governing authority in Athens for about 350 years, and he had apparently received a permit to, quote, draw, measure, and remove figures, end quote. Between 1801 and 1805, he removed about half of the remaining sculptures from the, from, from the Parthenon. There we go. It is also said that he received permission to remove other sculptures and things from the other buildings around the Parthenon, which... I guess it's good he had permission, um, obviously different times, but he had permission from So It Seems. The items were then brought back to Britain, and I guess the authorities in Britain were like, hey homie, where'd you get all this stuff? Because his actions were investigated, but they were found to be legal, and I think it had to do with him having that permit, so they were put in the museum by an act of parliament. Even though he did have the permit, it was not easily accepted from people around the Parthenon at the time. A witness at the time said of the removal of the artifacts that, quote, Athena wept all over her lost virginity, end quote. Which I think really just goes to show how important the artifacts are to people in the area. I mean, that's a pretty powerful quote. And... I'm sure you're aware Athena is a pretty powerful Greek goddess, so if she's crying, obviously something's not going great. So the attempts to get it back. The attempts to get these artifacts back started early, early on compared to the other two. Greece won its independence in 1832, and that's when requests for the artifacts in the British Museum started. The British Museum, from the beginning, argued that they should keep them because they wanted to preserve the sculptures and that they had preserved the sculptures from becoming ground-up limestone, which the Ottoman Empire was doing at the time. Which again, you know, we want museums to preserve history, that's great, I'm all for it. Um, but in 1999, so this is a long time later, but in 1999, a Greek group of conservationalists, which inspected the marbles in possession of the British Museum, found that in the 1930s, they were cleaned in harsh and harmful ways that erased important history from the structures, such as original tool markings. And this observation is important because it was the first time the stones were able to be observed by conservationalists outside of the staff of the British Museum, and it was the first time that staff outside of the British Museum were able to not only observe the stones like at an inspection level, but also just view the stones other than being a guest in the museum. 
and that's according to that Smith article from 1999. A quote from that article um, said, quote, the very morphology of the sculptures had suffered as a result of the misguided efforts to make them whiter than white, end quote. The British Museum, they responded with, quote, we have received no official notification about the findings, so it is difficult to comment specifically. The museum admits mistakes were made at the time, but we are talking about 50 or 60 years ago, end quote. And to that, I say it doesn't, like, I get, I, I'm not a museum studies person. I don't know all the techniques and how those have progressed over time. But in my mind, in the 1930s, museums were definitely a thing. So why are you trying to alter the state of, I don't know, what? Again, I don't really know a lot about preservation of things in museums, but in my mind, if it's stone and it's just sitting there, like it's not like it's deteriorating or it's not like it's a painting where you can do up close chemical restorations and restore the colors of the original painting. Like if it's a stone and if that stone is just being a stone, like let that stone be a stone. Just let it chill out. Like you don't need to make it wider just to make it like more aesthetic I guess I I don't know I don't get it just just let that stone be a stone so those that's those are my thoughts on that and also if you're doing that how can you argue that you're preserving things again I guess that's from a modern lens maybe back then they were like this is cool let's make it wider and erase tool marks <laughs> I don't really see how you could justify that as preservation but again I'm not claiming to be an expert on that Lastly, the British Museum website says that there is no current discussion on, or excuse me, there is no current discussion with the Greek government on this issue. So that kind of closes out that one. The last thing I want to chat about is the question we brought up during the first episode, that legal principle, no one gives what they do not have. How does this apply to the Rosetta Stone? How does this apply to the Benin Bronzes? How does this apply to the Elgin tablets or the, the Parthenon tablets? In my opinion, maybe not so much with the Benin tablets because it does seem like there are some good talks underway. I think Benin history needs to be brought back to Benin and it seems like there are there is progress being made in that area. But with the Rosetta Stone and the Parthenon tablets, in my opinion, I think they should go back to their countries because both of the countries have museums that can hold these artifacts and can display them at the local level. And again, I recognize the importance of preserving history, but it's not like there aren't museums in the countries. Like for example, there's a museum that you can look out the window and see the Parthenon. Like, and it's a world-class museum. I can't remember what it's called right now off the top of my head, but there's a world-class museum right by the Parthenon. So that excuse doesn't really hold up. Even though he had a permit, it was under colonial power that this permit was granted, and it wasn't granted by Greece. They were Greece's artifacts, and they were given permission to be taken by someone else who was not Greece. No one gives what they do not have. So did the British Museum, or I guess I should say, did Britain ever really own these artifacts? Did they ever really have these artifacts? Or did they take them? And that concludes part two 
of the British Museum and Stolen Artifacts. Normally I close out with closing thoughts. I feel like I put a lot of them in throughout the episode and I just kind of talked to, you know, I just kind of wrapped it up there, but I hope you found this very interesting. I loved doing the research for this episode. I learned so much and it's kind of an ongoing thing because it seems like the fight for these items to go back to their countries is still ongoing. And in my opinion, I think it should be ongoing because I think people have a right to their own history if they are able to preserve it in a way that will preserve it, simply put. Thank you so much for listening. I am going to be posting photos of the artifacts and then those photos that I said had the word loot on them. I'm going to post those on the social media. You can follow us on Instagram at Scandal101Podcast, on Twitter at Scandal101Pod, Facebook, if you search Scandal101Podcast, you should find our Facebook page. And if you want the show notes, you can find those at scandal101podcast.podbean.com. There is a link tree on the social medias and the website that shows you everywhere where you can listen. And other than that, I just want to thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this two-parter, and this has been episode 10 of Scandal 101.